0: Isaiah chapter 6, reading verses 1 to 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, And their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Even as the grass withers and the flower fades, God's holy inerrant word and yours forever. May he bless it to us. Isaiah is a great book. Even this sermon on the holiness of God from Isaiah is not going to deal with everything that is contained in it. We're going to barely scratch the surface. But the reason I am taking us here has to do with the series that I've been printing on the back of the bulletin in the issue of worship. And the whole focus of worship being the Lord Himself. And with worship and the Lord in focus, what is one of the greatest things that we need to worship God? We are told that from Psalm 96, a psalm that speaks about the call of God going out to the nations of the world Come and call upon the name of the Lord. Come. And worship your God. But as you go down in that psalm, Psalm 96, you get to verse 9, and it tells us, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. It's not about us just simply coming to God and saying, Hi, here I am. You know that modern contemporary hymn, Here I am to worship. It's like, God, I'm here. You know, giving you some attention. It's not that sense of worship. When he says worship the Lord, worship the Yahweh, the eternally self-existing God who doesn't need you to worship Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. You no, know, I think it's that latter part that we forget when we are standing in the holy presence of God. It is not one of those most casual situations, here I am, I've come home, are you glad to see me sort of thing. It's one that brings forth a trembling to our hearts and understanding in whose presence we now stand. Isaiah is a book that is dealing with worship, to be sure. It is a book that is very centered on Christ. And one of the foremost names that Isaiah gives to the Lord Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. And as you begin reading Isaiah, you see it isn't a book that just jumps into all the glory of Christ and all the blessings that God's people meet. Isaiah begins with God contending with Israel, contending with his people, dealing with their waywardness, prone to wander, we already sang. Do you see that of yourself? That we are prone to wandering from God. Doesn't take much for us to get off that narrow path. And Israel and Judah, they're two separate nations, but God still holds them as one people. Israel and Judah are disobedient, gravely disobedient. Within about 40 years from where we're reading here in Isaiah 6, the northern kingdom will be gone. They will be taken away in captivity God, after 200 years, God contended with their idolatry and finally said, Enough! Enough! But he's also talking here about the impending demise of Judah. They're not far behind. Even though it takes 200 more years or so for their demise to actually come about. God is dealing with a disobedient people. And yet... Isaiah is a book full of hope because it is a book about Christ. And and that's where God continually draws us as He's dealing with His judgment upon Israel. He meets them with the justifying grace of the servant in chapter 53. As He is dealing with the sinfulness of Israel, He meets them with the comfort of the gospel in chapter 40. Even as He is dealing... With the wretched, rebellious nature of Israel, he extends to them the promise of mercy. Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, cease to do evil. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And how many of you know this verse? Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. It's not that God is lacking mercy. He is saying, the depths of your sin, however red it might be, is a stain upon your soul. My mercy in my Son is sufficient to make you like snow.
1: Isn't that amazing,
0: Grace? That's where we are standing. That's what the book is all about. And Isaiah himself was one of the foremost prophets of the Lord. Isaiah served some 65 years. Can you imagine? I'm reading a biography of a minister in Scotland who served 60 years. Well, Isaiah, 65 years. He served under Uzziah and Uzziah's son Jotham and Jotham's son Ahaz and Ahaz's son Hezekiah. He was probably around for Manasseh because Isaiah is quite possibly that martyr that was spoken of in Hebrews 11.37 who was sawn. He was killed by being sawn in two. That was the depravity of Manasseh. But he is also one of the very rare servants of the Lord To have had a heavenly vision of God that rivals what Paul and John experienced. And it's at this point where he is recounting what he saw. The year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. Who is this Lord? And many have a lot of speculation, but it's good that God's Word, both Old and New Testament, come together to tell us who it is, because John, in his Gospel, John chapter 12, uh, from verse 37 to 41, quoting Isaiah 6, he writes that Isaiah was writing these things when he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Him. This is Jesus, the Son of God, in His pre-incarnate state, that Isaiah is beholding the second person of the Trinity, the one whom he would speak of further on, who would take human form and reveal himself as the Savior, the Christ, who has come on the authority of God to deliver his people from their sins. This is the one whom he will speak of in chapter 53, who would be marred beyond all measure but would do this to bear the sins and the sorrows and the griefs of his people in order to justify it. But this is also the same Lord, and sometimes you hear this, do you not people? This is the same Lord of the Old Testament that many would vilify as harsh, judgmental, and vengeful Haven't you ever heard people say, I prefer the God of the New Testament as opposed to the God of the Old Testament? Because the God of the Old Testament is so angry and so full of wrath and judgment. But the God of the New Testament, He is loving and kind and gracious. Well, this is Jesus. And this is Jesus who would speak the words at the end of this chapter that my word will go out from your voice, Isaiah, but I don't want my people to hear and understand because they need to be judged. Isn't that a frightening thing to consider? And that stems from who he is as the Holy One. This is the one who is the eternal word who John would also make known was with God and was God. And the thing we are considering this morning from the first four verses is this is the one who is Holy Holy, holy. Now before we get to understanding that phrase, I want us to first see that this is Christ who is the eternal King. That is brought to us right away. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now of course he didn't bear that name, Jesus, but he was Christ, the Son of God. And he is sitting on a throne This is Christ, the eternal King. Fix that in your mind. Let me ask you a couple questions. How many of you, September 8th, you know, we're never going to forget this day because it also happens to be Joanna, my uh, anniversary. September 8th, 2022. How many of you marked that day in your thoughts as the end of godly monarchs? in the world. Can you name another monarch or ruler in the world that you would say, without hesitation, here is a godly person? And Queen Elizabeth died that day, in case some of you are still wondering. Let me ask you as Canadians, and the American friends may not have seen this, but how many of you on Friday fought when the Inquiry into the Emergency Measures Act, when that report came out, that it sort of marked an end of judicial democracy in Canada. I'm sure there's many who think that. The irony of that report, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but the irony is that that our Prime Minister came out and said, see, we were justified in having Uh, imposed that Emergency Measure Act. And I thought, you didn't read the whole report because he said it was justified because the actions of the government and policing were so wrong and in error that it precipitated it. The reason he had to call in the Emergency measures Act was because they had fumbled policing And judiciary matters beforehand. That's what the report says. Now you think, well, why are you bringing this up? You know why I didn't get too exacerbated by some of these things? It's because Christ, the eternal King, is on the throne. And, And that is something that many Christians have missed. Christ is ruling. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then why do we have so much turmoil over what our governments are doing? If Christ is wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't stand and say this is wrong at times. But why the turmoil? This is the year that King Uzziah died. And some of you may not know what's so significant about that. But for Judah, it marked the end of 52 years of prosperity. King Uzziah was a good king. Now, how many kings of Israel and Judah is that said of? (laughs) In 52 years. Now, he did sin. Later in his life, he sinned by approaching the holiness of God in the vagrancy of his own sins. And God struck him with leprosy so that he ended his life isolated from family, isolated from the people he ruled, isolated from being able to approach God. But he was a good king. And his death marked the end of prosperity. In fact, even for the northern kingdom, which never ever recovered from the idolatry of Jeroboam. Even the northern kingdom, just three years earlier, had Jeroboam II die. And it was under Jeroboam II that the northern kingdom saw its most prosperous generation. Forty years of expansion and prosperity and Jeroboam dies. Jeroboam was the king when Jonah had his time as a prophet. The years of prosperity have ended. Jotham, Uzziah's son, he was a decent king, but when you read about him in 2 Chronicles 27, this is what it says, Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he wouldn't get rid of the high places. He wouldn't get rid of the idolatry that was spreading through Judah. He wouldn't say, no, you are to worship the Lord your God and Him alone. He allowed the people to continue In their idolatry. And we know what Ahaz, Jotham's son. Ahaz is only 16 years away from this point in Judah's history. And Ahaz, the first thing he did when he became king, Was he stopped the doors of the temple. And began to fill that temple with the idols of the people of the land. Desecrating the holiness of God. What is significant about this time is that godliness was in sharp decline. Think of Psalm 12. Save, Lord, for the godly man ceases. Uzziah's death was symbolic of the nation that also was dying in its faithfulness and godliness. They had overstepped grace. We talked about this on Wednesday. How easy it is to presume God's grace and sin willfully. I can do this sin because I know God is going to forgive me. Because I'm in his hands and once saved, always saved. And, uh, you know, the mercies of the Lord endure forever. And, you know, you might think how strange it is to think that way. But when you get into the enticing nature of sin, that's where the mind goes. And it takes a real work of grace to fight against those kind of thoughts. We know them if we're truly searching our hearts. Worship had become secondary. Assyria under a king, Tiglath Pileser III. The enemy of Judah was growing, growing in strength. And as Psalm 12 says, Save, Lord, deliver us, help us, Lord. The godly man ceases the faithful disappear from among the sons of man. Doesn't that somewhat describe the church in Canada today? It, It is hard to go to places in Canada to find a decent evangelical congregation. That's no secret. And I don't say that to disparage the church. I'm saying that to say that the times of a Isaiah here are no different than our time today. The prosperous times of the Church of Christ have long ended in this country. What begins to be your hope? Thank God Christ is eternally enthroned. That he is the king on the throne. And I think that's an important truth even as we see it here with Isaiah. Christ did not become king after his death and resurrection. In his humanity, he was elevated to that position of Lord of lords and king of kings. But it doesn't mean that he wasn't always the king. He was, is, he has always been enthroned. Psalm 2 t- tells us so so powerfully, so clearly that, that God... Himself has said there in Psalm 2, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Christ is ruling even amongst the nations that would seek to cast God off. Christ is enthroned. And what we're told in Psalm 2 is that in the hands of Christ are the days of every man and nation. And Isaiah, before before he goes any further on in his ministry of a prophet, God wants him to see who is on the throne, who is high and lifted up. When you read high and lifted up, what he is saying to Isaiah is that Christ has ultimate authority always and ever. Lay hold of that truth. Even in the climate of our day, dear Christians, Don't get exacerbated by what is going on in government because even in the climate of our day, there is none higher than King Jesus. And if he weren't king, my, things would be worse. But he says here as well in verse one, and this is, this is key as he's even coming to talk about the holiness. Look at his train. His train fills the temple. Children, what is that train? It's not one of these engine-powered vehicles that we hear going by during our services and those wonderful horns that begin to blast. The train is speaking about the robe of the king, how long it is. And kings who really wanted to, earthly kings that is, to boast of their prestige And their riches usually try to make their trains very long and have to have attendants to move it around so that when they sat or got up to walk, they wouldn't trip. It's like a long flowing gown. We see this sometimes with brides. If you ever go to a wedding and you see that dress with that long train behind it, that's what this is. And look what it says about the the train, the glory of our enthroned King. Is that it fills the temple. You know, that phrase only has significance to God's people. But what it was saying is that even in his kingship, the Lord is reigning with full mercy to those who seek him. Think again about Psalm 2. Because in Psalm 2, it's speaking about Christ enthroned by the Father, ruling over the nations. And at the very end, it issues this call and this command to the nations. It says, kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. What a warning to our nations. That if you are not looking to God and, and understanding you are under his authority and you serve according to his authority and so you will be subject to his judgment. If you do not bow the knee to the Son, what stands in your way is his wrath. What's the last line of that song? Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And what a thing for us to... To be called to as God's people. This is what, what Isaiah is seeing of the Lord Jesus. In all of his authority. In all of his holiness. What is there is that mercy that he has for his people. That he rules with his mercy toward us in mind. Does that not encourage you, even today? Do you feel blessed in these days? Not because we live in such a wonderful nation which may have a measure of worldly prosperity to it if you ignore the inflation and high interest rates and all the taxes that we must spend every year. Just ignore that stuff. We're, we're prospering. Do you feel blessed today when you heard the report that came out on Friday? Do you feel blessed? You see, that that's that's what... God is saying to Isaiah as he gives this vision, the blessings that you are, are, are enjoying are the blessings of his mercy to you in Christ. And that is the state of a soul that has put their trust in Christ. Is that your state? Something to consider. Christ enthroned in. And then we see, secondly, Christ the Holy One. How the Lord comes And and reveals to Joshua one of the glorious things about Christ. He is the Holy One. Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of Hosts. We're going to hear more about the Lord of Hosts tonight. So if you have time today, join us again this evening, please. He takes us to the holiness of Christ. Why? Because in such times, One of the greatest things that must be before you is an understanding of who God is. And when you have that understanding of who the Lord our Savior is, you will have an understanding of your standing in Him, which we forget. If I were to ask you this question, facing the world, facing the world in which we live in, what is the church's greatest struggle today? And I don't mean worldliness. That's always a struggle. What is the greatest struggle the the church faces today when you look at the world in which we live? Is it persecution? No, it isn't. Persecution is never the church's greatest struggle. It's obvious where I'm going with this. What is the church's greatest struggle? Holiness. Holiness. To be holy always our struggle see our foremost concern as christ church is not fighting the government of our day our foremost concern is pursuing holiness in a world that is not holy that's the hardest thing you you hear it from hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 a good verse to memorize pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Isn't that ominous? We can be engaged in many pursuits as a church, but if it isn't holiness, we're not seeing God. And when we make holiness our focus, even Our thoughts of Christ, it's the thing that begins that reverent worship of God that we are called to. You see that with the seraphim's uh, posture. As I noted before, the seraphim are angels, they're angelic beings, but they're fiery angelic beings. They are without sin. These are angels that did not fall into sin and disobedience and rebellion against God. But they come as as fiery angelic beings. They have a mind and a will to serve the glory of Christ. And look at their posture. And I think this is key for us as we think on holiness. They take the wings that they have and they cover their face. These are sinless beings who in reverence... Would not gaze upon Christ, the Lord of glory. This suggests the incomprehensible nature of God. That He is so far beyond us. Who can know Him, let alone look upon His face? They are overwhelmed by the majesty of God and they cover their face with their wings. And the question begs how much more we as sinners should. Worship is not flippant. Worship is not casual. Worship is coming into the presence of God to seek him. With two they covered their feet. And that suggests God is unapproachable. We hear that from Scripture. God is incomprehensible, Psalm 145. God dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And yet, how do we regard God in our thoughts? We have a very small view of God, don't we? They did not want their presence to intrude upon his glory. They covered their feet. Again, the question how much more should we as sinners regard it? And they flew with the other two. Amazing how to see six wings at work on one being, eh? <laughs> but flying suggests an ever-willing desire to bow to God's authority. I've always remarked this. In the New Testament, when Jesus is casting out demons, what was often the first thing that they started to say when they saw saw the Lord coming? They said, this is the Son of God! And Jesus immediately said, be quiet. (laughs) And they were quiet. Have you ever noticed that whomever Jesus healed and he said to them, Whatever you do, don't tell anyone. Go and see the high priest. How many obeyed that? (laughs) Not a one. Not a one. Every one of them disobeyed the Lord. But the demons didn't. Isn't that something? And here, the seraphim, bowing to the authority of Christ and ever-willing desire. To do his will. Always ready to do his will. How much more ought we? And that's how we're introduced. To this worship. And the holiness of God. The exceeding superlative holiness of God. Is what they are overwhelmed with. And all they're doing. And it, and, and it says even in, in Revelation. That they're constantly doing Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Three times. And it wasn't, as I said earlier, it wasn't like a parent saying, have you got it yet? What this is saying of the Lord of hosts is is a threefold statement of his holiness. What is his holiness all about, first of all? His holiness is about Him solely, only, completely, and exclusively being God. There is no other God. None. None whatsoever. Allah is not a God. Krishna is not a God. Buddha, man, they are not gods. There is one only Thus says the Lord of hosts, and Isaiah will speak this in Isaiah 44, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. There isn't. It's why we proclaim and confess the apostles in Nicene Creed. Who is God? This is who God is. There is no other. Don't be deceived by this world. He is alone, the God God. Set apart from all things created, the creator of all that is, the one who was and is and ever shall be. He is holy. And he is holy, secondly, as God, he is holy in the respect of being absolute in truth and righteousness. There is an absolute moral standard of truth. Do not believe this world and the vanity of its relativism. You wonder why the world is so confused today and not even understanding who people are anymore. It's because they have laid hold of relativism. There is no absolute truth. God says to the contrary, I... Am absolute truth. I am absolute righteousness. He is holy. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. First 1 John 1, verse 5. He's true moral majesty. Don't ever think, dear Christian. Don't ever think that the smallest of your sins is insignificant in the presence of God. He is holy. He hates sin. Period. There is no way to justify any sin. And he is holy, thirdly, in that he is the God who is the judge of all the earth. He is set apart in those capacities, the only God, the God of absolute truth and righteousness and the God who is the judge of all the earth. He is right and just to judge the nations. He is right and just to judge the church. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right Genesis 18. Now I'm saying this with a great deal of emphasis. Because we make light the holiness of God when we do not comprehend our own sinfulness. We make light the holiness of God when we trifle with worship. When we make worship all about me. And we do that. So easy. We make light of the holiness of God. When we can go a day without repenting. Of specific sin. It is so easy to make light of the holiness of God. He is holy, holy, holy and the whole earth is full of his glory. I know our time has moved on here it always does. That brings us to this point is that that holiness of Christ has always and ever filled the earth. There's never a point and that's what he's saying here. The whole earth is full of this glory of Christ. That's why God is able to say in contrariness to the thoughts of many people, well, how can God judge me and condemn me to hell when nobody's ever told me that there is a God or I didn't know there was a God? God says to the contrary, yes, there is, and the glory of our Lord is such that no one misses it. None. His glory, his ever-present holiness Fills the earth. Psalm 19. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. What is that glory of God? It is his ever present holiness. He is God. There is no other. He is God of absolute truth and righteousness. He is God who is judge of all the earth. The heavens declare this. The, firmament, the the very earth that we live in declares this. That's why Paul would say in, in Romans 1, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. To hear a person say, I don't believe in God is one of the greatest judgments. That is upon them already. And God's wrath is against them. Justly so. Because. Romans 1. 19. Because what may be known of God. Is revealed. In creation. God has shown it to them. And they'll say. No he hasn't. Look to the heavens. Tell me. How do you think. This was created. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen so that they are without excuse. It's not that they don't believe there is a God. It's that they do not want to worship God and they do not want to bow to his authority. That's the issue. And that's what we are confronted with, even as we as God's people. Walk in the holiness of our God. God is holy. Christ is holy, holy, holy. We need to know that holiness to begin to worship Him. We need to know that holiness to please Him, to see Him. We also need that holiness to tremble, to acknowledge our need of Him. We stand as sinners before a holy God How? How can you stand before this God? This is the amazing thing. He's provided that way. Through the one who is holy. Through the death of the Holy One in your place. Through the resurrection from the dead of that Holy One. Who died and who rose again. Through Him who was punished for your sins. So that your sinfulness... Be cleansed and washed away. This is what God has done for us. So that he can now say. Because if you are in Christ. He will say to you. You are my holy ones. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? My friends tremble. Before the Lord. Before his holiness. Own that work of Christ. In your own heart. Believe on the Lord. And through his sacrifice. He will make you clean for that very presence of God. Believe Mm -hmm. him. You will bear the holiness of your God. Let us pray.